I keep going back to this idea that the pharmacies do 160 to 180 million vaccines year in, year out between Labor Day and Thanksgiving. You know, if we can mobilize that system, I think we can get to the number of doses that we need pretty rapidly. Welcome to the Rain Insights on COVID-19 podcast. I'm Emily Donahue. From stricter mask mandates to extremely cold weather in parts of the country, numbers of new COVID-19 cases continue to fall this week. But doctors are still concerned about new variants and the rate of vaccine distribution. Let's listen as Rain founder David Lawrence speaks with doctors Fred Southwick and Bill Lang about the latest news. Fred, some good news, uh, both in terms of infection rates going down across the country, but also around the effectiveness of the vaccines. Yes, they, the vaccines are maintaining a very high efficacy, uh, and also the toxicities are, is exceedingly low, which is very good news. Um, and for the UK variant, it appears the efficacy is equivalent to the, the quote, wild-type virus. So that's good. Uh, the uh, South African mutant there is some reduction in efficacy, but there still is significant protection. So, uh, so far, the mutants that we've seen are, they, the vaccines do confer some protection. But Bill may have some other additional comments. Well, so the you know, University of Texas medical branch, and I forget which one of, which one of the medical branches, they did um, neutralization studies where they took took serum from vaccinated patients, you know, fully fully vaccinated patients, and put it put it in against the both the UK and the um, South African strain, and they were it was functionally neutralizing in both. So that was that was key. That was just Wednesday they uh, they announced, but yesterday they put that out. That's great. And um, let me revisit a uh, question that uh, we partially addressed in a prior podcast, but which keeps coming up. Does it matter which vaccine I take? And we hear that, obviously, because the shortage of availability and some people are, you know, at least uh, there's a lot of chatter in social media about one vaccine versus another. It'd be great to have any updates on your views. Yeah, from my uh, mind's real quick. Go mine's ahead, real yeah. quick. No, no, there's no difference. I mean, there is there are differences, but take whichever vaccine someone's willing to put in your arm. So I'll I'll, I'll leave that leave it then on to the science of it. <laughs> I I completely agree. If you look at the efficacy of the two, they are identical. You look at the rate of side effects, they're almost identical, um, and they really have the same target, the spike protein. And they both use mRNA. The only difference is Madeira is a little easier to manage because you don't have to have minus 80 degree. You can use minus 20 degree um, uh, freezers. That's the only difference. And then we think we're going to have J&J probably, probably start to see it coming out the first week in March. Um, assuming it gets through the approvals over the next couple of weeks. But J&J, while they have committed to 100 million doses by July 1st, it's looking more and more like that's going to be very much back-end loaded. They've only got a couple of million doses that they're going to be able to release um, at at the time of the announcement of the the emergency use authorization. Um, 
but and then it's going to it'll ramp up from there. But it's sounding like it's going to be really May June before we start seeing that in quantity. But still, when you take if so, if we have a hundred million doses by July first, you put on top of that even at the current rate of two million doses a day with the with Moderna and Pfizer. And I, I'm thinking more and more that we in the United States will probably never see AstraZeneca in large quantity. I think AstraZeneca is going to end up being focused in other parts of the world. So you know, you just do you do the math on that, and that's really. By July 1st, that's roughly 300, 350 million doses. Um, so certainly, and we're, and we're going to be front-loading that with the people who are at the greatest risk. So I, I'm still thinking, and Fred, maybe you're, you'll disagree, but but I'm still thinking that we're going to be a long way to whatever may be herd immunity by you know, June-ish, early June, you know, maybe even a little bit earlier than that time frame. Uh, yeah, I, I'm hopeful. The The one issue that's come up when I've talked to modelers is children. Uh, the vaccine is uh, for those 16 years and older, and that leaves a significant population that can still spread the virus. So I'm hoping that it's going to be approved. I understand their trials to 12 and older, but this still leaves a significant percent of children that could spread the virus. And that is a little bit worrisome as to whether or not we're going to be able to achieve herd immunity. Sure, because it's not it's they're spread you know, evenly throughout society. So it's not like it's it's one group of people that might be at higher risk. They'll spread that risk throughout society on the on that Pfizer has fully enrolled children in their 12 and up study. Um, those results should be available in they're, they're probably it's probably going to be two months. Uh, Moderna is having a very difficult time filling their study um, they, because they're being very careful about doing cross-section of uh, socioeconomic and, and uh, ethnic groups. And they're having a very difficult time filling their study with, with enough kids to get to the numbers they need. So Moderna may be later. But you know, hopefully what this will be mean is by the late summer, or I, st I still think what's going to happen with kids, it'll be part of a back to school program. Um, you know, just like many of us had when we were kids, when we were the first week of school, one of the things you did was you get certain vaccines. I would not be at all surprised if, if we see that coming up in the fall. Uh, that would make sense. That really would. Okay. I, I note, um, I think we're still only at about 10% of the population has been uh, vaccinated. And so what are the impediments, assuming that, you know, there's a sufficient supply, and at least as of this date, um, people remain very, very frustrated uh, trying to go online and make appointments and uh, being told that, you know, currently uh, there is no supply. How do we get from where we are today to that, that point, whether it's in June, July, August, September? What needs to be done? I think one of the biggest steps has been taken uh, in last week was when they enlisted the pharmacies who had been begging to be included in this and have taken them out of the control of the states. And the big pharmacy chains are getting this week. They got a million doses next week. They're getting two million doses and they expect that to ramp up. Um, what, the one thing I'm not clear on is that in addition to the doses that are going out to the states or is that part of that. So when they're quoting um, 1.7 million doses a day this week, 
does that include the million that they gave to the pharmacies or not? I, I don't know the answer, and I've actually looked for that answer. The the um, the statements from the government have been a little bit misleading, but um, we're it's it's this as of this week, it's 12% of the population in the United States have had a first dose. And comparing that a little bit to around the world, um, we are actually ahead of the rest of the world with the exception of the United Kingdom, which has immunized 16% of the population with first dose, Israel, which is right at about half the population, um, and the United Arab Emirates, which is immunized about a third, but then again, they're using the primarily the, um, the Sinovac vaccine. So a vaccine that has had a little bit, a few questions about its efficacy. Uh, but Israel is using uh, AstraZeneca primarily, um, some some Pfizer, um, and it, things are going very well. Yeah, uh, Dave, uh, what I think should be done is we need more of a partnership in that what's happened is the health systems were, were uh, asked to immunize their patients and their employees, but then that's where they stopped. So... Now we're saying the public health department takes care of the rest. The pharmacies take care of the rest. And I think the health system should continue to partner with the public health and the pharmacies to vaccinate. Another thought I had, and I've talked to some modelers about it, is once we've vaccinated all those over 65 and those with significant underlying disease, uh, a, a very simple, and I'd be interested in Bill's thoughts on this, uh, a way to really enhance the efficiency of the supply chain would be to uh, vaccinate, try to achieve herd immunity by county. And you could, uh, that way you could, uh, in about four weeks with a concerted effort, you could actually vaccinate a whole county then you would not have to worry about uh, contact tracing any longer. You wouldn't have to worry about testing because that county would have achieved herd immunity. Uh, though, as I think through that, I just think of the politics of that. It's not so much the, I think that the, the science and the modeling could make, could make perfect sense. The politics of that, you know, which county gets chosen. Uh, I just, I, I, I think the the other in, in some of the work of modelers that I've read, and I haven't had the opportunity to talk to them directly, but the um, the age cascade model. Once you take care of your most at risk people, then start going down through just through an age cascade. You know, all those over sixty five, then all those over fifty five, then all those over forty five. When you model that out, that apparently is a very efficient way to do it. Also, yes, because there are no barriers. It's very clear who's eligible. Uh, the one thing that concept that I've thought about is a forest fire. Do they take uh, water and sprinkle it over the entire forest or do they pick specific, do they concentrate on specific areas and, and uh, get, uh, end the fire in one area and then move to the next? Uh, they use the latter approach and I wonder if that wouldn't be a more efficient and effective way. I agree the politics are a problem and you'd have to have criteria as to decide which counties would go first. They could be established. But uh, it is a loaded politically. So let me um, shift, and I'm, I'm just doing back-of-the-envelope numbers, but if um, 30 million vaccines are being delivered every month, Bill, I think that was a statistic. Uh, that, 60 million, 60 60 million, million. a month. Okay. Uh, so that is, you know, roughly 
uh, 20% of the population every month. And if you assume we're starting from a 10 or 12% now, um, it seems like, you know, it, it, it's going to be another four to five months to have the necessary number of vaccines. What about the administration of these vaccines? We continue to hear uh, frustration, uh, and it may be because of what you guys are talking about. This is being administered at the different state levels and things like that. But people are having trouble um, getting to a place where they can get a vaccine, knowing where to go, where to turn, um, having an appointment. Uh, it very much feels and continues to feel hit or miss. People feel as though almost like they've won the lottery if they're online and they just happen to luck in. What can be done? And, and maybe the answer is, as, as you've already described, if it's generally available at the pharmacies, uh, it makes it a lot easier for people uh, because of the sort of ubiquitous nature of many of the, the national chains. And I assume Costco is also going to be included in this and other types of places. But if assuming, you know, within five months we have all the vaccines that we need, the administration, how do we sort of increase the efficacy of that and making it easier for people to know where to go? David, I don't think that the the uh, hang-up is at the actual places where we're going to put needles in arms. It's, and it doesn't seem to be getting it from the uh, manufacturers to the state distribution points. The real hang-up is how do you get it from these major state distribution points out to the sites that are going to be administering the vaccines, whether it's the pharmacies or the health departments. Um, you know, I've, I've, I experienced it myself, plus I've talked to many other people, that they go to the health department and they're, they've got everyone lined up to give vaccines, but they not having enough vaccine that they can that they can uh, give and all they know that to do is look back up the chain and say okay we're not getting it from the state the state must be screwing up and the state is saying we're not getting it from the feds the feds must be screwing up um, but it's so it's it's it really is looking at the whole the whole chain and I, I keep going back to this idea that the pharmacies they, they can't answer everything but pharmacies do 160 to 180 million vaccines year in, year out. Well, I'm not the pharmacies alone, the system, but the pharmacies deliver a large portion of this. Year in, year out between um, Labor Day and Thanksgiving, you know, we, we do 180 million vaccines without breaking a sweat. The pharmacies do a large portion of that. And I think if we just, you know, if we can mobilize that system and we are supplying that system and then we're bringing additional resources in, such as the health departments that are not usually part of that that annual flu vaccine drive, um, I think we can get to the the number of doses that we need pretty rapidly. The other thing I would say, David, is that a number of healthcare professionals are volunteering to help with vaccination. So there are plenty, there's a, a very significant labor force that is available on a volunteer basis. And our health department actually has a sign-up place, and I'm actually recruiting physicians and nurses uh, to va help vaccinate. So I think uh, as we get a good uh, system for incorporating volunteers, that will help as well. 
and most states are allowing retired physicians and retired nurses to come back and um, do vaccinations. That's in fact, when I got my, my second shot, it was a retired nurse um, who was doing the vaccination. She was perfectly capable and competent to do it. Um, but so there, the vaccinators are out there, the places to get vaccinations are out there. We just, we just have to have enough vaccine to efficiently get distributed. What you both seem to be suggesting, it's been this final, we'll call it the final yard that seems to be the hang up. And of course, um, just from a consumer standpoint, we're monitoring this carefully. Um, people are constantly online or challenged by phone or whatever to, to know where to go and when can I go there. And that obviously raises the level of frustration um, from that end. Um, I, I will know for the members of the audience, I think a lot of the media outlets have done a great job in terms of the data around the virus and, and uh, tracking vaccination rates and, and such. Uh, NPR, just some, I think, nine or ten hours ago, uh, created and, and pushed out a national map of, uh, that covers where uh, you can go to get a vaccine. Uh, of course, that doesn't mean that, as you say, Bill, the vaccine will be in supply, but at least uh, they're trying to triangulate and um, sort of provide people with a search tool so they can know all the places they potentially might go for the vaccine. So uh, there is some help on the way. Uh, in the few minutes we have remaining, um, Fred, you touched upon a point about vaccine for the children. Maybe you can explain um, to the audience what that requires. Uh, is it just a, a matter of tweaking the adult vaccine, the types of testing that has to occur and how these firms get their volunteers and, um, and such. And, um, you know, obviously uh, I don't want to suggest that adults are perhaps more willing to take on risk, but when it comes to their kids and vaccines, obviously there'll be another sort of lens that people will apply in terms of uh, having their children vaccinated. Yeah, I, I'm not a pediatrician, so I, it's hard for me to speak of this in too much detail. But uh, certainly children have very reactive immune systems. And therefore, there is a potential for uh, more in the way of side effects. And I think that's one of the concerns um, with the manufacturers, they, that's a different, it's really somewhat a different population. So that's where the issues are coming in. And that's why I think there aren't any trials below age 12. You know, most of the time, it's the age 2 to, to 12 where all the vaccines are given. And so it's, it's quite ironic that for this particular virus, uh, that group is being left out. And one of the the good news, as we know, is that for the most part, children under 12 get very mild disease with the exception of the multi-system inflammatory syndrome, which is a reflection of their very powerful immune system overreacting and then causing inflammation of all their organs. So that's a, a potential concern that are, are, uh, came up originally was, would the vaccine create this type of uh, multi-system organ inflammation? And the answer in adults is no. We don't know the answer in, in younger children as yet. And Bill, do you have any uh, thoughts about this as well uh, as a result of your practice? The one point that the observational 
issue that we've had is that this has not been a big issue in elementary school. It becomes transmissions become a bigger problem and symptomatic transmission has become a bigger problem in at the high school level and certainly significantly at the uh, at the college level. So colleges, we're going to get with the currently available vaccine. You get down to high school, we can already get 16, so we can get half of high school um, with available vaccine. And then we go down to 12. Now we've got high school and middle school. And so we just have the elementary schools where it has not been a big issue for those kids, but it is a big issue for them spreading it. Part of the the concern that I think a lot of people have is kind of the ethics of the vaccine for younger kids, especially. Younger kids do not get sick with this. So if we're vaccinating them, we're not vaccinating them to benefit the child. We're vaccinating them to benefit society. So if that's what you're doing, your risk threshold for the vaccine itself especially when we have seen these um, these uh, immune hyperimmune issues that have come up, your vet, your threshold for safety is very, very high. And I think that's the ethical concern that a lot of people have when we start getting under 12. And my assumption here is that uh, any vaccination for children will also have to uh, be subject to very strict FDA review. Exactly. And that's the concern. I think uh, for the younger uh, children, they worry about toxicity and that may lead to uh, uh, denial by the FDA. And I don't think a lot of companies want to get into that. And there's plus there's the um, the public relations aspect of it is that if one of these vaccines demonstrates that it does create problems in kids, well, the general public is going to say, oh, my gosh, if it's causing problems with kids, is it going to cause problems with me, too? And we already have enough of a public relations issue in getting especially certain segments of society to be willing to take the vaccine. These are all great points. Uh, we'll end with uh, possibly this question. What should we be looking for over the next two weeks? Uh, Bill, you mentioned um hopefully the introduction, and Fred mentioned it too, of the J&J vaccine in the not-too-distant future. Anything else people should be on the lookout for? Um, I think the exciting thing is the uh, number of cases is steadily declining, and it's really been a very, very steep decline, which is very encouraging. And it really shows that when you're mobile, when you don't use masks, when you gather in large groups, you create a, a surge in cases and when you stop those behaviors, uh, all the cases dramatically drop. And so human behavior is very, very important in, in this epidemic. And so the hope is there aren't any other new large gatherings that are predicted. As long as we stay conservative and uh, use masks and social distancing and don't go join large crowds, I think we should see a continued decline, which is encouraging. The one concern will be if the South African variant or the Brazilian variant gets into our population, the vaccine may not be as efficacious and there, these viruses do spread more efficiently. And there is a prediction possibly of a surge in mid to late March if the predicted the UK, which is becoming uh, more and more dominant in certain areas if that one takes over. 
Well, and I, I've been asked by a number of the organizations that I work with for summertime planning. And what I've been telling them is you as to hold off for a couple of weeks, because I think we're going to have, I think the next two weeks two let's say between now and mid-March, we're going to have a lot of very important data coming out. Number one is, you know, how much of an effect on the timeline of getting to herd immunity, whatever that may be, how much effect are the variants going to have? Exactly what Fred was just talking about. Two weeks ago, you'd get in the media and the sky was falling. It was going to destroy everything. But the data is actually looking much better on it. And those good studies that we've already talked about, and especially what they're seeing in Israel. And the other part about Israel that we should be able to get, start to see data over the next two to three to four weeks is what is the herd immunity level? Israel has 50% of their population immunized, plus they had a huge percent of their population that was directly uh, infected and affected by the by this. If anyone is, if any country is going to be getting to herd immunity soon, it's going to be Israel. So let's. I think we all need to watch what happens there over the next three or so weeks. And fortunately, they've got an excellent public health system and excellent uh, health care analysts. So we're going to be able to get, we're, we'll see good data coming from there. That was question one. Question two is, does vaccination prevent infectiousness? And as Fred said, we've started to see some data on that, but it's still fairly difficult because as I understand it, um, it's very difficult to prove the lack of infectiousness. It's the old story of how do you prove a negative? Um, so that's going to be, but there is some data on that that's developing. And then the other two questions are simpler ones. Is J&J &J going to be able to deliver on a, on a fairly rapid timeline or is it going to be pushed back? And then will AstraZeneca have any role in the U.S. in the near future at all? Um, but I think we'll have the answers to a lot of those questions over the next two to four weeks. All right, Bill, Fred, as always, thank you for your insights, continued service, and look forward to catching up next week. Right. Thank you. Thank you, David. Dr. Bill Lang is an expert in public health responses to biological incidents, including pandemics. Dr. Fred Southwick is an infectious disease specialist at the University of Florida College of Medicine. Individuals and organizations turn to RAIN for risk intelligence that cuts through the hype to focus on what they need to know, what to expect, and what to do. You can sign up for our coronavirus solution and get critical information on the COVID-19 pandemic delivered daily. Visit us at RAINnetwork.com. That's R-A-N-E network.com. I'm Emily Donahue. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.